welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this is the fifth episode in our season on adaptation. This week, we are looking with laser focus at how we adapt Austin for the stage and screen and we'll be joined in conversation by Sharmini Kumar and later... Lauren and I dig into Emma Thompson's production diaries written on the set of her 1994 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. True story. Now, we have a lot to dig into, so why don't we go ahead and jump into our interview before we talk about my obsession with Emma Thompson and, you know, maybe even Kenneth Branagh. He might get in there. I could do a whole podcast series on Kenneth Branagh, by the way, but... (laughs) We'll see if today's the time and place to start that. I think you should. I could do a whole series on Kenneth Branagh just in Henry V with like uh. one bonus episode on his coat in Dunkirk or 1914, whichever of those two films that I watched in the same weekend. Sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, Sharmini Kumar is an Australian playwright and the founder and artistic director of 24 Carat Productions an upcoming theatre company, and the brains behind Austin Cotton. So just the first question, just give us a little bit of your background, your relationship with Austin when, when Austin came into your life, and then how that carried over into the theatre, because that's really interesting. Yes. I actually first heard about Jane Austen through the Babysitter's Club. Yes. <laughs> How long have we been doing this show? And this is the first time I think that we've we've had that answer, and that's a great answer. Because uh, I don't know if you read the Vegas Little Club. <laughs> yeah, uh, but at one stage, uh, I think it was it was one of those special books where they all mm-hmm, go off on mm-hmm. a cruise, and somebody's talking to somebody else, and they're talking about their favorite books, and somebody says, "My wife's favorite book was Pride and Prejudice." Hmm. Uh, yeah, I was a reader, so and my parents are uh, really try always try to encourage us to read like classic worthy novels, right? Uh, but I was into sure. the babysitters. <laughs> I mean, and, same. And I was same. eight, and my dad couldn't get me into Dickens. Like it was like, what is even right. going on? <laughs> um, but we used to have like there were school fairs. Uh, we called them fates here, and there were these. There was always a massive book, secondhand book thing and if Mm -hmm. you if you went at the end of the day they would give you a plastic bag like a grocery bag um uh for I think like a dollar and you could just Mm -hmm. fill it up with as much and as many books as you wanted from the from the all the tables it was what was left over right so you know we were on budgets at the age of like 10 or something and I came across Mm -hmm. and so I had my one dollar bag and I came across a really old one and it was clearly like somebody's school copy of Pride and Prejudice I was like I know this one Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is going in the bag (laughs) (laughs) um and I liked it so Mm -hmm. um you know, I just, I just enjoyed it. it yeah. Uh, it was just fun. Like it took me a while to get through, um, but I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. So that's when I first started reading Austin. And that's then, amazing. Yeah, started reading. Now I'm just more. very curious to know which babysitter that you related to the most. I, I know it's not an Austin question, but. I always felt like I was a Marianne. <laughs> 
gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I think probably in reality, I'm more of a Christie, but uh, I was sure. felt like I was like the, the uh, this is going to sound weird to anyone who knows me, like the quiet one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and my parents were probably a little bit stricter than other people's. That's probably more where it was. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. What about you? Who were you? So I was like really obsessed with Dawn for a long time. Okay. I I was not, but I'm definitely a Christie. Love the babysitters. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, so yes, the babysitters <laughs> club introduced me to Pride and Prejudice, and then I read it mm-hmm. and I loved. <laughs> I love Jane Austen. I, I think the plots were easy for me to get a handle on at that age. Like I could follow sure. what was going on. I liked that there was humor in it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you get into the theater? Because it's like now you've got too many jobs. You're a woman yes, with too many jobs. I, I understand too many jobs. So lifestyle. So before before I had you know got into the babysitters, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was bussing my brothers around and making them act. Um, <laughs> so so why I didn't think I was a Christie is completely beyond me. <laughs> Um, and yeah. just got really into theatre as, as a high school kid, like I was, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 one of the theatre nerds, um, loved Oscar Wilde and all of that kind of stuff, but hadn't sort of put together the idea of adaptation um, mm-hmm. at that stage for myself anyway. I was just kind of like, oh, here's a play. I like this play. You know, well, let's, we're all going to perform the importance of being earnest kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then as, as, then, uh, as I got older, I sort of... Uh, you know, oh, never going to make any money in theatre, went off and did a quote-unquote proper degree, got a quote-unquote proper job and went, hang on, this is no fun. I want to go back and do some more some more STEM stuff. And it's probably about 10 years ago now that I started doing some of that again. Um, initially sort of easy adaptations of Shakespeare things. It's relatively easy to adapt Shakespeare. You just cut things out and... Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you just cut things out. Yeah. <laughs> it's very long. This is what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare was the first adaptation I did in school. Ooh, so, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just cut things out and yeah. gave it a different setting. Yeah, essentially. yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then as I sort of started thinking more about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say, um, it, we were coming right up onto... Austin's the bicentennial of her death which was 2017 and I'd had this idea of sort of a a slightly more interactive conversation with the audience about some of the themes of persuasion and Mm -hmm. a friend of mine uh who is an Austin scholar her PhD is in um uh Austin fan fiction Mm -hmm. um uh said oh you know we would have we would have space for that at our university as part of the Austin celebration. And so I went, oh, Very great. Cool. Well, so, that, so that was persuasion. We did persuasion as the first thing. Um, and I went, oh, look, we're, we're, we're making this theatre company official. And, and that's when 24 Carat, we registered that. Amazing. So you guys haven't been around for very long. Uh, so, t- yeah, 2017, registered 24 Carat at the end of 2017. But, I mean, we I'd sort of been playing with the name for a while and and I'd been mm-hmm. I'd been doing theatre for a bit longer than that, so yes. Mm-hmm. But yes, twenty seventeen was the official beginning. Yes. And then, do you guys have like an official mission statement, or yes. are you guys sort of? Yes, we do. We are. I should know it off by heart, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's to do with promoting diversity and um, 
challenging people's ideas at the same time as being really entertaining. Um, that's what we want to yeah. do. Yeah. That sounds good. And it yeah. all does it all center around like Austin Regency material? No. Or are you open to no. anything? No, 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 no. Um, so yeah, Austin is a big part of what we do because we do, as you know, Austin Con. And thank you for uh, for participating last year. And thank I thank you for having us. Oh, and thank you for reminding me that we would like to have you back again this year. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Talk about that later. Um, so that's that's a thing that we yeah that we've started doing as well. Um, but and we do an Austin piece every year that goes with that. But if in between time, like we've done stuff, the the piece that's meant to be coming up is about. Uh, so I have a bit of a thing for historical kinds of things, just reinterpreting and digging into it, finding new things. Um, is is about uh, queens uh, and royal women from all across history. Um, we've done 1950s Hollywood zombie stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, all kinds of things um, as part of. 24 carat yeah but uh i guess the austin thing happens once a year so so when you did your virtual jane con talk mm-hmm. um you said something that made so much sense to me and i was like of course of course um and i believe it was uh sheena pew i think was the scholar that came up with this the more of versus more from sort of concept and I was like, yeah, what, what is that? Tell me okay, about that. Okay, so <laughs> this, is, this is, again, thanks to my friend. Like, I don't have a lot of, I don't have scholarly background at all in Jane Austen. This is, yeah, mm-hmm. this is all self-taught kind of stuff. Um, but my friend uh, Kylie, who, whose PhD is in um, uh, fan fiction around Austen, was the one who pointed me in the direction of this, this article. Um, and I can send it to you if you like. Oh, please do. Yeah. yeah. Whenever you can. Yeah, yeah. And it is a concept that sort of evolved around fan fiction and the different different kind of streams that um, Pew was seeing in, in fan fiction in terms of what, it, what people want out of their experience of both writing and reading fan fiction, either more of what they are seeing or they're really desperate to expand the world. And it just mm-hmm. it just seemed to make so much sense to me. Like the, like you say, it's just like oh yeah, that like whoa, <laughs> yeah, I was that like, just oh, explains yeah. it, right? You know, there's yeah. the people who who want more of the same, and you know, good on them. And that's mm-hmm. what we have the BBC 1995 Pride and Prejudice for, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and then there's people who want more, and that's why we have like you know. LGBT books with dragons based off Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. right? You know, whatever it happens to be. So um, it just it just made so much sense to me, that concept, uh, that division mm-hmm. in terms of fan fiction and then in terms of adaptation and, and um, you know, then I started reading more about it and, and about, about what adaptation is and it's such a slippery thing, right? Like adaptation goes from everything from like very literal um, adaptations through to, you know, a, a sort of riff on it or, you know, clueless or mm-hmm. something even more loosely related. Um, and surely, surely fan fiction must fall on that spectrum somewhere, right? So, Oh, yeah. But yes. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of think like everything is an adaptation, right? Even if you just read it out loud, you're adapting it. You're, you're sure. inflecting every point of dialogue with something that, 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 that changes the way that your hearer sees it, re- receives it from the way that they might in another way, where even if you read the exact same words directly off the page, right? So everything Absolutely. is an adaptation. You've worked on quite a few adaptations. Yes, of Austin. It's a lot. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Persuasion was the first one. Um, and then the following year we did Pride and Prejudice. Um, and then we did a, another Pride and Prejudice adaptation, which was a five years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did an Emma adaptation. And this year I've been working on, it's pretty close to finished, um, Sense and Sensibility, the musical. Oh, nice. Yes. Very nice. So you're tackling, you've pretty much got everything. You've got a couple more to do. Yes. Yes. And some really interesting ones upcoming. So Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But uh, has there been anyone that's like stood out? Is there one that was like super difficult to adapt? Like Persuasion you, you love. So was that difficult for you to adapt or was it easier? Do you I know? mean, it was the first novel I'd adapted. So I'd adapted sort of plays and things like, as I said, just kind of cutting things out. (laughs) Um, And it's uh, this was probably where I learned about the process of you have to just kind of like two scenes in a novel is fine. You can just have one scene and then just write another paragraph and it's another scene, right? Two weeks later, dot, 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 you know, Uh, whereas on stage you can't change things that many times. Your audience will just... Mm -hmm you know, whatever. So you've got to put things together. Um, And that's where I sort of started thinking about how do I introduce some of the themes that I want to in Austin? Like I want to talk about um, class. I want to talk about gender. And it's in Austin, but it's not on the page. So how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I invented these servant characters and that was sort of almost an upstairs, downstairs kind of concept with that. So how to, and so it's thinking about adaptation from that point of view. Um, Pride and Prejudice was relatively easy once I got the concept for it. Like I'd started thinking about the authorial voice in Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen's voice, that sort of, um, it is a truth universally acknowledged kind of voice, um, Mm -hmm. almost like a Greek chorus. Yeah. And so that sort of informed the way that that was adapted. um, the the five years one was a lot of fun just because it just gives you freedom to be like anything you can imagine can happen. Um, just like, you know, Kitty comes out of the closet yeah. and uh, Lydia's having an affair with a Frenchman and, you know, it's, it's just it right. be, like anything, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that that felt really freeing in that sense. Emma was probably difficult. It's, Emma wasn't a straight-up adaptation because that, that was last year and we were in lockdown. So uh, it, that was an entirely online thing. And it wasn't so much an adaptation of Emma as it was just an exploration of the themes. Um, mm-hmm. And we'd set that in a classroom that was meant to be talking about Emma. Um, but three of the, the students in the classroom were characters from the novel. Um, gotcha. Yeah. It was very well, much a response to Emma. In a it was sense. more of a yeah. response to Emma, yeah. And we did go over the plot just in case anybody <laughs> tuned in who'd never heard know. of Emma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I don't know why they would. Probably if they got dragged along or something. <laughs> Um, that does happen. Yeah, but it was more of a response to Emma and it was more of a, um, I guess, personal in a sense because one of the key characters in that was a person of colour um, mm-hmm. responding and, and trying to grapple with what it means to be a fan of Austin as, as, and a person of colour. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, dealing with some of the issues around race and particularly particularly race, but also around gender and, again, class and and, um, and things like that. So that the main, uh, so it, it was a process of maybe showing the 
Emma and Knightley characters sort of coming to an understanding of their privilege that they hadn't had before. So it's, again, a more of kind of more from, sorry, more from that. Um, and Harriet sort of taking her place as well as, as coming to understand that, that, that she has maybe more importance, more power, more, um, that there are ways of reading her role in that that are different to the way that I think she would have read herself in that role in mm. the Austen text, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> I think the more I read Austen and read other novelists of the time, like, I mean, obviously Bronte would be the, be the, the obvious comparison, like uh, I'm rereading North and South at the moment as well and as the, the, the folk, Gaskell's focus is so specifically on issues that she doesn't have a lot of lived experience of both sides of that, mm-hmm. whereas Austen really confines herself to what she knows, like knows, knows. Right. And I think there's something in that that makes her easier to adapt. That's interesting. Than than a Gaskell. Mm -hmm. That's just my feeling at the moment. But that could be because I'm trying trying to come up with with a North and South that has vampires and zombies in it. But I like that idea because, you know, because Austin does seem easier to adapt than a lot of authors in a sense and I always wonder if that's just me because I just know her very well or if there's something about her work that it's actually just makes I it think the, I, this is what I've come to think and this is what, what I'm thinking at the moment is just that my micro focus on the on the very specifics of human interactions that 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 is universal and I think that's what makes her easier to adapt like that dynamic between Emma and Harriet is so specific, right? Like, yeah, and and, it and, and and the and you can and it's so specifically drawn and it's so relatable, right? Like, I don't see that in the relationship between I don't know, like Rochester and Jane. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like there's not much that's relatable to me. <laughs> Never dated anybody yeah. who had a wife in the attic. I don't know. What can I say? Listen. Yeah. That that's I know. All, that I know. That is about sex. <laughs> <laughs> that is about Charlotte not getting the man she wanted. <laughs> and that's specific. fair enough. I mean, that's yeah. fair enough too, but because it's that, like, it's a layer of something on top of that that you, you sort of yeah. have to do for it. Whereas Austin writes that relationship, just back my name around Harriet, so specifically, and you can trace the origin of it, the ups and downs of it, the way it sort of parts at the end in a, in, in a kind of way that's that's so, it's sad, but it's very, very relatable, right? And she right. does that with all her, all those interactions that I think that's what, what for me anyway, like that translates so well. And there's so much stuff you can tease out of it, like the, the um Anne and Mary relationship in uh, in persuasion. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, uh, Mary, <laughs> I love Mary. Yes, <laughs> I love a complainer, but she's. But yes, you're right. It's very specific. It's, it's so specific. Um, uh, and it's play obviously played for comedy in the book, but there's stuff in that too that's quite. Um, Pathetic's not the right word. I'm thinking of pathos. There's some pathos in there as mm-hmm. well. Um, that that Mary is, you know, so distressed by 
what's going on, the stuff she doesn't have control over and all that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Mary's not in a ton of the book, but I do feel her as a fully developed character. Oh, 100%. And this is what Austin does so well, right? Like that mm -hmm. you, you, she, she builds out these characters with just such a little amount. Like uh, I was thinking yesterday about the relationship between Darcy and his cousin. Um, mm -hmm. And you could, like that's, you, you just from the what's in that book, you kind of know exactly what their history was growing up. Like yeah. Darcy totally just told him what to do and he went along with it every single time, you know. Just right, <laughs> right. Now, is there one adaptation that you've worked on that sort of stands out that you'd like to, to chat about a little bit? Some of the, the joys and the pains. <laughs> I want to I wanna know what was a struggle because I do think that people are under the impression that adaptation work is easy. And Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really hard. <laughs> Especially when you're dealing with beloved material as mm -hmm. well, that people mm -hmm. have very personal connections to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is on my mind at the moment is Sense and Sensibility, just because uh, I'm you're literally working on, working on it right now. Uh, so, I mean, look, one of the difficulties is getting the Emma Thompson version out of my head. Mm -hmm. um, like... <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I just actually I'm reading that script right now for something that I'm working on. And it's such a good script. It is a very good script. It's yeah, and it's beautifully adapted and and stuff that Austin doesn't include in the novel. It's it's like it is a lovely novel, but it is also a first novel. Um, mm -hmm. And there's so little interaction that's on the page between Eleanor and Edward, mm -hmm. between Brandon and Marianne. Like it's way more of just her bitching about him behind his back. Right. There is a like anything that resembles a connection. So you kind of have to create that. Otherwise, mm -hmm. uh, I'd initially sort of tried to um, explore the idea of having them get together in the end, but not having them in like not having any spoken dialogue between them initially for the for the whole first part of the the piece and then that just didn't work because everyone's like why do I care that these people get to do it? Sure. <laughs> you know sure okay now I've got to go back and invent things mm -hmm. um and yeah so that was hard um mm -hmm. and it's it it was obviously hard because we were making a musical so <laughs> I had to write right. all this stuff that rhymed <laughs> Yeah, that sounds, songwriting sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, two things helped. Uh, one is uh, rhyming, online rhyming dictionaries. <laughs> Good tip. <laughs> and also, I don't know if you're aware of the Austin Thesaurus. I'm not aware of the Austin Thesaurus, but something I say all of the time, or just a question that I ask that doesn't need to be answered is, how much of writing is just looking at a thesaurus? Because for oh. me, it's a lot. It's, yeah, basically a lot, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And for when I'm adapting Austin, the Austin Thesaurus. So it's it's something like writelikeaustin.com or something. And you can type in mm -hmm. any word and it will tell you how many times Austin used that word. Um, and it'll give you, synon like it'll say, sorry, Jane Austen never used the word whatever. And it'll give you some options um, of words that she did use. And you're like, okay, that's the one that I want, partly because it rhymes with, no, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So write like Austin. Perfect. Yeah. 
Right. Okay, I, that's amazing. Yeah, the Austin Thesaurus, uh, and it does have a tip jar on it, so I, I uh, semi-regularly tip. Who bless the person whoever did that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the 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 songs were difficult. Um, what else? And then, and then there's so much stuff in Sense and Sensibility around. Uh, um, <laughs> around how you how you determine the value of things and the value of people right. who were treated as things effectively, um, uh, and the other the other difficult thing about it was a, there was a fabulous stage adaptation done by Kate. I've forgotten her name recently. Kate Hamill. Kate Hamill. Yes. Kate Hamill. Mm-hmm. Kate Hamill. Recently, so between that and Emma Thompson's script, I'm like, oh, why did I even, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then I just started digging more into, uh, I even read, I've been reading a lot about Adam Smith mm-hmm. <laughs> and the wealth of nations and how, like, I, I, just, I think I'm only taking yeah. away the very, very basics of it and trying to sort of apply that and work that in. Um, um, I've got Eleanor trying to teach um, Margaret about um, economics. <laughs> yeah. Just that so makes that, sense. Yeah, just to their micro level in terms of, and then Margaret sort of trying to figure out how that applies to people and, and that kind of thing. In it. And um, the other thing I'm sort of trying to do a bit more is dig into Brandon's backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, he was in India and, I mean, that literally means he worked for the East India Company. Um, right. And... And was involved in the really shitty things that they were doing in India at that time. Um, so what does that mean for that character? What does that mean for someone like Marianne, who almost certainly in my mind took play, you know, took part in the sugar boycotts of, you know. Yeah. Um, and does she see that differently? Because, because technically they were, you know, the Indian workers weren't slaves as such, therefore, does she see it differently? Does she, is that something she's she's more able to get past? Or is it just add a layer of like discomfort to that relationship? Mm-hmm. Once you bring that into the explicit dynamic of their relationship, you know, it's all about money. Like, because mm-hmm. Eleanor's like it's improper, and Marianne's like, no, no, you know, forget propriety. And then Eleanor has to go. Well, actually, we can't afford to accept this gift. Is mm-hmm. you know, and I think just think that's so such an interesting perspective um and so I've, I've tried in every scene to to talk about the, the the price that we pay for various decisions so it's it's metaphorical as well as um like literal um and and the compromises that people make as a kind of price of of life choices um but yeah it's, it's so much about money um yeah in lots of ways all her novels are um but sense and sensibility it's this yeah there's so much in that that's that's yeah just about money yeah is there something and you it could be sense and sensibility or anything that you've adapted that you just haven't been able to make work on stage and you've wanted to pull that into the script but it just financially or costumes I mean we know horses can't do it but (laughs) um I had originally I think I've got better at thinking through that adaptation process as as I go so I just kind of mm-hmm. automatically ditch things um 
or automatically see what's going to work on stage. But initially I had this idea of doing a, a bit more of the um, persuasion from Frederick's point of view um, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of delving into the stuff that the art, that the Navy was involved in at that point, mm-hmm. um, more actually from his point of view and talking about, you know, uh, people being pressed into service and, and you know, that's that, that kind of stuff, the... the um, um, the role of the military in um, uh, with slavery and with um, colonialism and that kind of stuff. And then I was like, you know what? We are not going to be able to manage a boat. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> but if we set it on a, like, even if we just have this, you know, a, a section on it, like, it's just going to yeah. be. And, yeah. and then I, I realised that, yeah, that wasn't Austin either. Like, mm-hmm. And I, di- I didn't need it to be able to talk about it and I, I just felt like it was going to come off a bit. Um, I just wasn't confident that I was going to be able to get those relationships or those dynamics right without just being preachy, you know? Sure, yeah. Um, so there's a number of reasons, but also I was like, are we just going to have the actors standing there and swaying? <laughs> How do we actually physically do this in this yeah. space? Yeah. Um, and then we're going to have to have a whole lot of, like, it's going to have to mostly be male actors. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have to think about the balance of the script and then and yeah, just, the yeah. casting so, yeah, and is yeah. the cast going to be, yeah, 8 Cost million it. people or, yeah. Cost it mm-hmm. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I like that. It's interesting angle, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How do you... Yeah practically get it there yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then just like in terms of like running the theater company or having the theater company there's lots of just like practical concerns that you have obviously with um with just every angle so tell me about some of those challenges i'm sure funding casting costumes um so well, costumes are less of an issue now. We actually have a decent supply of Regency era costumes. Um, built up over the years. A that bit, we've built yeah. up over the years. Uh, and basically my mother and I <laughs> have oh got gosh. quite good, yes. My mother's always been a seamstress um, and I've been a sort of okay sewer. Uh, but through through this process, we've both got reasonably good at making Regency-ish dresses. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, nice. Oh. Yep. So it, dresses are relatively easy they're, and they're nice and full and you can, because of the, because of the way they're constructed, you can, the, the fit of them is, is less specific than for, mm-hmm. for breeches or trousers or something like that. But we have a decent supply of both male and female um, costumes. Um, funding is always an issue. Oh, gosh, funding. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. basically self-funded at this point. We apply for, mm-hmm. we have started applying for things, but you know, applying for things, you get knocked back and it just, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So it just becomes sort of what we can put together from off our own bat. Um, casting mm-hmm. is difficult, partly because of the funding. Like if we could if we could right. pay people more, we would probably have more options in casting. Uh, but the, the other reality is that the theatre world is very, Ah, very at this level anyway is very white very young and very female Mm -hmm. not that the female part is particularly a problem for adapting austin um but uh yeah try trying to cast um actors of color 
uh, writing specifically for actors of colour and then it becomes a, a lot more difficult to specifically cast according to a particular um, racial background. Um, mm-hmm. That's really hard, um, partly because writing that just feels like a lot of responsibility to start with, just like, okay, mm-hmm. we, we, want to do, we want to get this right, um, we want to do it well, and so you put a lot more time and effort writing um, as well as you can for a person of colour. And then um, the, the like uh, every time I've put out a casting call for, for a character of colour, every time I've had more white people um, than people of colour apply, every time. Right, right. <laughs> And I think, okay, no, it's it's not just white presenting people because they put in their bios that they are Caucasian and I'm just like, Mm -hmm. okay, like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) How do I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. And to be fair, some of them will will include a little message that says, I'm, you know, I know I'm not right for this, but please consider me for any other part. But a lot lot of them don't. And I'm just like, okay, this does not inspire me (laughs) with confidence, people, you know. Right. I, um when you were ta- you were talking about that a little bit during your virtual Jane Con talk, which I will also link to in this episode, if it's still going to be up. I don't know if I'm going to take it down, but yeah, yeah. no, it wasn't planning yeah, to take it cool. down. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but um, I related to that so much because I think, you know, where we're at now, just culturally, every person of color I know is um, – we're trying to diversify these spaces that we're in. We're trying to do this work. And I think there's a lot of pressure on us to sort of to do this, but we can't get it done overnight, if that makes sense. I I just, I felt that when I was listening to your talk, I was like, uh, same thing here. I think a lot of times where I'm like, okay, I want to do this, 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 and this. And then I'm like, oh, that doesn't, that's not, how am I going to change this? Mm-hmm. How am I going to, I can't do it all overnight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like, and I feel like the people of color in these spaces are under more of that pressure than I think other people seem to realize at this moment. I think that's, I think that's very true. And I think like we're at one, one point of it and there's a whole like feeding into it that like, where does, you know, where do actors come from? <laughs> right, right. And that whole process that leads to the difficulties that we have, but then the mm-hmm. spotlight as it were is on, you know, what are we casting? Mm-hmm. Who are we casting? What what people are we casting? Um, yeah, and I think, like, I feel that pressure because it's not just externally, but it's something I want to do. Um, and, I, again, it's, it's so sense and sensibility coming up. We're thinking about hoping, planning to cast that in the next month. Um, and, again, it's, it's it, I want to cast um, people of colour in this. And I'm th- kind of thinking, okay, where are they going to come from? We're, we're, how are we going to get these people involved? Who do we tap into? Obviously, it's a musical, so they have to have some degree of um, singing ability <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I don't want to be the only person of colour in my own company. Right. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to be the token, to, token diverse hire <laughs> for myself. Sure. There. But, it, but it sounds so much like an excuse, right? We couldn't find anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I understand that. Um, yeah, because I I feel I feel that way constantly. I'm just like, oh, I, should I talk about this? It sounds like an excuse, but also, I'm um, like, 
maybe I should be open with some of the difficulties that I have in these things so people understand like what the issues are and like can come forward with solutions. I mean, just for example, just things of like, just trying to diversify the show essentially. And um, I've gone back to old ways of doing things or I constantly fall back on my old ways of doing things. I'll say that. And then I'm like, oh, that's not working. I'm not reaching the right people. I need to like look here, do this. I need to just think about this in a completely different way, essentially, or I need to be approaching just completely different people than I'm used to. And it's just, it's just relearning how to like, how to do the things. Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's work as well. Right. And it's, and it's, yeah. And so even for those of us who are people of color working in that space, it's still work. Um, And it's still more work, which is fine. And Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do the work, but it's also work that, because of where we're at and I don't know how um how many millions of dollars you're making from bonnets of dawn every month Um, so many (laughs) (laughs) but for some of us (laughs) it's what we're essentially not getting paid for right um which again is fine um but it still it still just is that extra work on top of exactly, the writing, yeah. the producing, the everything else. Everything I mean, else, yeah. yeah. So, so the the this is not Austin um, related, but the piece we've got coming up with the the, re, the queens is um, the Regina monologues. Is that is so? Some of them are European queens, and some of them are not. And the, the difficulty that we've had specifically casting for um, Asian or African um, or Indian. Um, women has been it's been really difficult um trying to find the right person trying to reach out through the right channels through multiple channels weeding through all the um applications from white people (laughs) Um, and then so it's just it's been it's been really difficult um whereas when we've had we've had one of the european the characters the actors playing a european queen drop out we we recast that with literally within half an hour right okay Um, yeah just that much easier to do mm-hmm. um and that's that's nobody's fault um and it, it, it just is um and yeah. it's like you say it's a systemic thing that i i, I you know want to try and fix but can't definitely can't do it can't, <laughs> can't, can't do, do it, it on your own <laughs> can't do it on my own can't do it overnight um yeah. and that's our reality and it just and we put so much thought into it as well. And I think I, I think I get a little bit frustrated when I see bigger companies seemingly putting much less thought into whitewashing characters and various other things. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I, I've been like, okay, so my background is that, is that my father's Sri Lankan. Do I have the, uh, you know, is it appropriate for me to be writing for an Indian character, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. like that level of kind of thinking things through and who do I show this to and, you know, what mm-hmm. kind of um, um, sensitivity reading I need to get done. It's just uh, the work that that, that goes into it. Um, do you also think too, like people of colour have like a hesitancy when it comes to Austin or period pieces because they're like, oh, I don't want to play them. Like they immediately like, I don't want to play a maid or I don't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think, I mean, I think it's always hard to, I assume that lots of people of color, if they see that I'm casting Anne Elliott and I'm, I've put 
you know, any any ethnicity, that they're just they're going to assume that I'm going to cast a white person. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I think there is an element of that, but with the difficulty I've had trying to get people, trying to reach out to people of colour, even for very specific roles for people of colour, that uh, I think there's there's also an availability issue um, as yeah. well as a hesitancy issue. Yeah. And do you, as a person of colour, have it like you're working through your issues with Austin and with Empire on the yeah. page, it feels like. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm into yeah, that. this is just therapy. <laughs> I mean, every woman I, of colour I know who's in this space is like, I'm working through it. Yeah. <laughs> in, a, in one way or another, yeah. via costuming, yeah. via writing. Yeah. yeah. Is there... Um, I don't know. I hate to say like anything that you've learned or anything that you've like really come across that you've just had like an aha moment or felt really like just you've really gotten into or you've gotten a lot of out out of. Not that you figured it out, because I don't know anyone that's figured it out yet because people are like, it's complicated. Yeah, um, I think it's just been lots of little things for me. Um, like the more I read about uh the East India Company, um, that was something I was been obsessed with for about 18 months now is the East India Company, which is not a, not a pleasant thing, by the way, to be obsessed with. That was right, not a yeah. pleasant piece of history. Um, and the more I sort of see that perspective, that sort of um, understand stuff about India and about what England was doing in terms of colonisation um, and even the way that that has caused Austin to be taught in um, colonies, um, that's part of how I now see Austin, which is really interesting in terms of the the, the uh, idea of Austin as aspirational um, and her characters as aspirational is very sort of tied up with colonisation and the way that um, Austin has been sort of presented by England as you know, here, this is, we are telling you that this is what you want to aspire to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think the the Sheena Pugh kind of stuff that I've read, which, you know, it's just such a simple concept about that more of versus more from is, is mm-hmm. has sort of opened um, my kind of thinking in terms of what, what it is that we do when we adapt or, or, or and, and I think even the more I think about what adaptation is, um, is, means that I just, yeah, there is no such thing really as a faithful adaptation. So every, every adaptation, as I said before, from just reading it aloud is, is a choice and does do certain things to what that, what the text is and how we perceive the text. So I just think lots of little kind of things like that have just been helpful for me. That sounds good. I love what you said about Austin as aspirational, because I think that's been a very similar journey for me of like less and less aspirational as more and more as we do this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just the way I viewed these characters and and what's going on, what's going on behind. Yeah, I think it diminishes Austin to see her characters as aspirational, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're so human. And when you sort of take that veneer of like, uh, uh, idealizing them away, it just gives you the freedom to look at them in a, in much more interesting and and um, complicated ways. 
Yeah, I think to just just interacting with people who do sit with that discomfort with Austin and with any sort of white culture, um, I think, you know, those of us who are people of colour brought up and engaged with um, quote-unquote Western culture from a young age, like I think we have that about a lot of things, right? Yep. Oh, yes. Austin, obviously, but also, you know, uh, Tolkien, Dickens. All of it. Buffy. All of it. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, what was really interesting in January, I was contacted by a journalist here and she was gathering women of color together because she wanted to hear their opinions on Bridgerton. And she wanted to know like how we could escape or enjoy something that was potentially problematic. And I was like, I mean, that's like everything. Like, what are you? I was like, my my best friend is obsessed with K-pop, but it is it's deeply problematic. And she actually gave a presentation recently about the anti-blackness in K-pop, but also she loves K-pop and won't stop listening to it. This is how we engage with this material. This this mm-hmm. discomfort. Mm-hmm. This is normal mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's just that choice of yeah, with everything, right? Like, do we? Do we engage with it and the problems are with it and love it? Or do we just be like, okay, those problems are too much. I'm walking away from it. And I've seen both reactions in to, to Bridgerton from people of colour mm-hmm. um, and to everything, like everything, you know? Right, Austin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All of it. And we are back. Uh, another amazing discussion. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Sharmini. One thing that um, I also really liked about the conversation was the discussion about how Gaskell can be hard to adapt because she's just giving you so many points of view. And that, yeah, I really, I love that about her. I think she's got this real researcher's mentality to writing. Um, You know, when you go to the house and you like open the little book, I always think about this little box. There's this little box that you open and it like gives, shows you, no, it plays because it's audio. It plays a recording of um, a dialect, a dialect, and kind of explains how William would help Gaskell like write it down, like translate it into words so that she, Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say. There's so many magical boxes at Gaskell's house. So she could play noises. Yeah, so that she can- dialects mm. in her, yeah, in her books. Mm -hmm. But like meticulously, she wasn't doing like a- broad like this is what it might sound like she was really trying to be like authentic about it but then from the same point of view um I don't know like if you think about all of the different angles like politically that people are approaching situations in north and south like how do you get into all of those mindsets I think the adaptation does a really good job but like it is hard and I think at least with Austin right or wrong because Austin loves a main character learning a lesson Mm-hmm. rightly or wrongly you do exist within one character's kind of frame of mind and as they learn and as they grow so do you and like information is withheld from you until the character knows it that's a much easier mindset to like drop into yeah and I just yeah I hadn't thought of that before the conversation so yeah thanks <laughs> yeah Oh, we'll um, talk about it later. We'll talk about it more in this episode. But um, Emma Thompson also talked about the struggle of 
the scenes that happen off page in Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Like and there's the like connection. a lot. Yeah, so I didn't much realize and, like yeah. how many there were actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, really liked the idea, uh, like the image of Marianne um, being involved in the sugar protests because like, of course mm-hmm. she would be. And then mm-hmm. the struggle of like this relationship she has with Colonel Brandon um, and his time in the East India Trading Company and like the wealth that she has a share of as his wife and like bringing that to the foreground is such an important way of paying tribute to Austin, I think. And like a nice reminder that Mansfield Park isn't the only novel that like touches on these subjects. Yeah, like, for she sure. She tells us about his background for a reason. Mm-hmm. She just wouldn't say otherwise. She'd just say he had some money. That That's the adaptation I would love to see. Honestly, I need like an entire stage play or book about Marianne being involved in the sugar like protests mm. and then sort of coming to terms with Colonel Brandon's wealth. Like that would be really interesting. Maybe she meets Fanny. So you did both talk about um, Thompson's adaptation of Sense and Sensibility in the interview, which is handy because even though we discussed that adaptation way back when in season two, episode 13, when we were joined by my then housemate, Jack, and your, I guess, still husband, John. Still married. Yeah, Mm -hmm. still married. Uh, That was a really fun episode. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. It's um, an old uh, one, though. It's really old. So if you do go back to episode two, season two, episode 13, um, don't hold that audio quality against us. (laughs) Or this episode, because there is a police helicopter circling my house. It's just looking for you. Just guys, I'm in. They're coming to get you. I'm inside. Um, I will say something that we didn't discuss at the time because you know we hadn't read it. Uh, was the diary of actress and screenwriter Emma Thompson written while the film was in production in 1994? Now, this book includes a screenplay, photos from the set, Thompson's diaries shooting locations and like the full cast and crew um, on top of Thompson's amazing Golden Globes acceptance speech written in the form of an Austin journal entry and a letter written by the actress Imogen Stubbs, who played Lucy Steele. Great Lucy Steele, Mm. by the way. Love her, Lucy Steele. And she wrote that as an exercise to just get into character, which is quite cool. Do I all directors do that now? Because actually in the notes originally referenced, I know they did this on the Harry Potter set, but I didn't want to talk Mm. about Harry Potter. Um, Who came up with that? Who was first like, oh, hey, write this essay. I want to like prove. Because they always talk about on like director's commentaries. Like, oh, and then we did like this writing exercise and I was Mm -hmm. so like my character, actually. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Directors uh, give people homework to get into character. It's good. There's someone I should give like, them all homework. Do a book on it. Collect it. Actors, character essays. Um, so this is going to sound super unrelated, but do bear with me, Lauren. It's going to make sense. Sam mm-hmm. and I watched Mayor of Easttown recently. Uh huh. And so I. Did, so did I. Yeah, I threatened him with. Uh, I was gonna. Oh, it's st- it wasn't a helicopter. What was that? I heard it power down. So we watched um, Mayor of Easttown, and I threatened to make an Instagram account called Relatable Kate. Mm-hmm. 
And it would just be still shots of her when she's looking really disheveled and pissed off. And the reason it would be successful is because every screenshot would be her looking disheveled and pissed off. So it's like a real Mm -hmm. mine of relatable Kate content. And I did have a few moments while reading Emma Thompson's production diary that I thought were very relatable Kate moments. And also, she's nice. so British. I just really felt like Emma she's Thompson is the most British person on the planet. So like a couple of really British things. Uh, no duvets. <laughs> I went like more British. Uh, no duvets, but old fashioned sheets and blankets and good tomato soup, England. That was very British. Mm. That was, I mean, I love tomato soup, so I get it. Um, And then (laughs) I walk to work, magic, pheasants, cows, horizons, fruit salad and toast, chocolate biscuits at 11, bean and lentil curry, peas, spinach and rice, apple crumble and custard at lunch, three sandwiches at tea, no dinner, appetite clearly restored. That's like a Dorothy Wordsworth entry. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, oh, Ang, she's talking about Ang Lee, the director. Ang says at the end of one day, this is a nation of fannies. It rings horribly true. I mean, can we put it on a t-shirt? Yeah, a nation of Because I love it. I think it actually works for the United States and the UK, <laughs> so. Okay, and then there's like one last one. Um, and then this is on filming in England. Hugh Grant says, the moral of filmmaking is that you will be fucked by the weather. I believe yeah. he said that. That I believe I it. Absolutely highlighted that because I've actually heard many people in the industry say this. This is like the number one rule of filmmaking. You will be fucked by the weather. The most stressful thing about the diary was the schedule changes due to the weather. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds bad. <laughs> it's bad. It's really bad. It's very stressful. Oh, I forgot actually, no, the most relatable Kate moment was this entry. She just says like, I spend the rest of January in tears and a black dressing gown and bed with the script, Austin's letters, a sore back and wind inside and out. I just, she's so funny. I don't know. She's really (laughs) funny. She's really funny. Who knew that? (laughs) (laughs) I just, I loved as well, like every time she talked about her writing, her thoughts on Austin, every time she was like oh and we laughed and laughed and kept saying it's in the book like her Mm -hmm. connection with the book and the crew's connection with the book and Ang Lee's connection with the book is just like it just really shines through in every entry so can I just say that this is one of my favorite books it ticks like so many boxes for me so it's Austin it's a very fine film script Mm. My God, like, (laughs) please study this script. It is fantastic. It's funny. It talks about the creative process. You know that I love anything that talks about how you do something. Love that. Um, And I just wonder, like, can we publish more production diary Mm. script books like this one? Is that is that a thing already? Guys, let me know. I screamed when I read her diary entry from Sunday, April 30th. Now we got a little Greg Wise action in this, her future husband. So Greg Wise, Willoughby, turned up to ride full of beans and looking gorgeous. 
ruffled all our feathers a bit. Lovely. Is that where it started? And also my favorite bit is when she noted that Ang Lee's notes to Greg later on that day read, great acting, period. I think. Yeah, I really, yeah. (laughs) I also really liked the bit when she was like, uh, kissing Hugh was very lovely. Glad I invented it. Yeah. So good. (laughs) One thing that I thought was really fascinating, speaking of Hugh Grant, uh, is that every now and then the diary gives you this glimpse at what's happening offset. So Kate Winslet mm-hmm. takes herself off to the cinema to see Winona Ryder's Little Women. Uh, Hugh Grant gets arrested with a sex worker in LA. And yeah, remember sadly, that? <laughs> yeah, I th- well, I think about that all the time because, and it's a whole thing. But like, he really recovered. Yeah, that's why we had a lecture on his. Um, approach to acting and the roles that he took and the Mm -hmm. way he presented himself in media studies it was very interesting i'm sure (laughs) uh and then also the day that she found out um about christopher reeve's riding accident and she knew him because they'd been in the remains of the day together and she doesn't give us like a lot of those moments so kate winslet is described um, as an independent soul, Reeves' accident is referred to as a black, black day. And Hugh Grant's arrest appears kind of cheekily. It just says like, Hugh G in a spot of bother up LA, apparently. Something to do with a blowjob. It's all right for some, I thought. Spe- very British. Very, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I really appreciated seeing, like we said before, seeing um, Emma Thompson's connection to the novel and Austin's work grow was something that I really appreciated in the diary and I feel like I actually learned so much about Austin and about Emma Thompson as writers and I'm now just like so jealous of anyone who has had the opportunity to write a film and have it made and to like go through the process of making it and doing the rewrites Mm -hmm. and I think that writing adapting Austin for the screen is a dream project that I will never ever get to do. So I'm happy to have read this diary and to live vicariously through Emma Thompson. And there was this bit from the preamble that I thought was really funny uh, where she said, I have a notion that it might be nice to see Colonel Brandon tickling Trout, something to draw Marianne to him. Tickling Trout is a mysterious old country method of catching Trout. You tickle their tummies and when they're relaxed, you whip them out of the water. I asked Gloria if it's possible to get a trained fish. Lindsay says, this is how we know I've never produced a movie. (laughs) Yeah. Such a good storyteller. Uh, Write more books. Uh, Write more books, Emma Thompson? What the hell? Um, Yeah, so that preamble, amazing. And one of the reasons why I think it's actually so great is that it lets the reader know, like right off the bat, that filmmaking is just nonstop problem solving Mm -hmm. and budgeting and scheduling like originally Thompson wanted the film to begin with a fox hunt and she's at this production meeting and she's telling everyone about this like cute little fox that's gonna start the movie and everyone was like okay so do we train a fox from birth for the role dress up a dog like a fox which I would love to see someone try to do actually i would love to see the stages of trying to like get this little dog fox i feel like i've seen that on instagram 
Just like a dog grooming Cute. time lapse. <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> you know, I um I'm desperate to write something for film, but then whenever I read any sort of like behind the scenes book on filmmaking or a production diary or something like this or a script, I am like always reminded of the freedom that we have as comic writers. Mm. <laughs> Where like we can write in explosions, we can use any location, and we can have the artist draw in like as many cute little foxes as our heart desires. You know, anything is possible because we don't actually have to go out and make that happen. Yeah, it's funny. I'm dropping in all the problematic writers today, but I I remember in a in an interview, Joss Whedon was talking about why Buffy, um, the comic series, is so much weirder than the TV series. And it was because... They could do whatever they wanted in the comics. And so he was very much like, we'll stop the show and then we'll continue the story in comic books. And we can just do all of the stuff that we couldn't afford to do. And that wasn't Mm -hmm. physically possible on the TV show. And if you think about Buffy as being like pretty out there already, like there's some weird stuff going to happen in the comics. So back in the day, I had a series of gigs in in sort of around filmmaking, including in post-production. And I worked in locations for the Illinois Film Office as well. And I can tell you that I just think that it's a miracle any movie gets made at all because there are so many ways it can go wrong. Like in post, a lot of times you're like, oh, wait, we didn't get enough coverage of this one scene or the sound actually was a little messed up or the actor sneezed or, you know, just like there's so many things that could happen that could go wrong. And locations was a nightmare mess. My God, just like getting permissions. Um, there could be construction. You could, you know, get a house for a location and like the pipes could burst because we have like extreme cold weather here in Chicago. So just like so many things could just like throw you off track. And um, that is definitely why I highlighted that line from Hugh Grant, where he said the moral of filmmaking is that you will be fucked by the weather. Just like, absolutely. You're going to get fucked by something, basically. (laughs) And this actually does remind me of a bit that was cut from an essay that we have in an upcoming book called Austin After 200 about adaptations. Now, we were specifically writing about Pride and Prejudice adaptations, but you know, it applies. So here's this paragraph that probably deserved to be cut. I think <laughs> it... Me just working out some of my feelings about, you know, filmmaking and whatnot. Listen, it deserves to be cut, but it also deserves to exist somewhere. And this is that paragraph's moment, Lauren. Right? This is where it should live. So... It says, it's worth noting before we begin that we shouldn't expect filmed adaptations to be direct translations of the novel. Rarely is there enough time or money to allow every aspect of a novel to be converted onto screen. Filmmakers highlight the aspects of the novel that speak to their own sensibilities. Some directors may be more interested in the visual aspects of an Austin novel and place more importance on style over story. Maybe I was talking a little bit about Autumn to Wilde's Emma there. <laughs> Some writers may envision Pride and Prejudice as a romantic comedy, for example, and will adjust the characters and dialogue to support this worldview. Filmmakers find that their vision is constantly challenged, sometimes altered by weather, scheduling, difference of opinion, format, technical difficulties, and even the motion picture code. 
in Devani Lozer's book, um, she does note that to comply with the motion picture production code, MGM also changed Mr. Collins from a clergyman to a librarian. So there would be no whiff of criticism of men in the cloth. And that was in that, uh, gosh, 1940s adaptation. I love that adaptation. Of Pride and Prejudice. Which, it's great. It's really fun, isn't it? Mm. And this quote from Joe Wright kind of backs up what Hugh said, honestly, <laughs> in a more diplomatic way, I guess. And as Joe Wright said of his own adaptation, you try to plan as much as possible and storyboard everything, but then you have to be open to whatever the elements are, the actors are, whatever you get given on the day. So films aren't a singular vision, but rather a collective vision full of compromise. And this is something that's abundantly clear in Thompson's diary. Yeah, 100%. The collective vision really strikes you. And what was interesting is, especially I think in this series and this episode, we talk about diversity on stage, we talk about it on screen um, and how important it is to introduce more voices to the world of Austin. But this does also go for people who are involved behind the camera outside mm -hmm. of the writer's role. So the diary often touches on the culture clash experienced by the director Ang Lee, who was working for the first time in England with the majority British crew and cast. And there's a description of the big luck ceremony that Lee hosted at the start of filming and the subsequent loneliness he felt shooting in a foreign country. And then she also, at the same time, comments a lot on his undeniable connection to Austin. And so I pulled a few Ang Lee anecdotes from the diary. There were so many. So this is just... There's there so many and they're so good. I promise this is like the select anecdotes, although it will seem like <laughs> a lot of them. Thursday, 20th April. I've learned that Hugh and I caused Ang great suffering the other day. He has never had any actor question anything before. In Taiwan, the director holds complete sway. He speaks and everyone obeys. Here, actors always ask questions and make suggestions. In this event, his idea was much better than ours, but that we should have an idea at all came as a genuine shock and he was deeply hurt and confused. We talked and I think he feels easier. I feel terrible as though I've ruined Ang's first day by not being sensitive enough to his situation. It must have been terrifying. New actors, new crew, new country, and then us sticking our oars in, chastening to realise yet again how much I have to learn about being too impatient and overwhelming, bed in a heap of rubble. And then... Lauren, do you want to read this one? Yeah. On Friday, the 21st of April, Eng is very keen on the yin and yang of sense and sensibility. His sensibility, very unsensible very unsentimental like Austin's. They're remarkably connected. She'd be astonished. Friday, 12th of May. For Ang, the house is as important a character as the women. One last, I love this one, oh my gosh. Wednesday, 31st May. Ang is thrilled with all the topiary in the gardens. He had Marianne walking by this extraordinary wiggly hedge. When the thaw came, they cut away the dead bits and continued to grow the hedge in the shape of a wild snowdrift. It looks like a brain. Sensibility, said Ang, pointing to it triumphantly. And sense, he continued, pointing in the other direction towards a very neat line of carefully trimmed flower pot shaped bushes. And 
I guess I those little stories they just made me keep thinking about how transnational film is you know mm-hmm. like all of the different people and experiences on the crew writing it acting it and then distributing it and viewing it and consuming it and then talking about it and just like talking about like the houses as important as the women mm-hmm. and like the bushes are representing sense and sensibility yeah. it's in like every shot like yeah the it's es- in nature the it's in of it is like every shot is saturated with this idea mm-hmm. of sense and sensibility, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not over so, the top too. Mm-hmm. It's like really subtle and it's nuanced and- And like yeah. in ways that you wouldn't notice, like you're not necessarily mm-hmm. gonna like look at the hedges, but it doesn't matter because like, it's just a way, it's just a way of communicating it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Austin wrote it and Ang Lee is a director. So he's gonna direct that feeling. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. Now, there is an interesting bit where she talks about the questions that executive producer Sidney Pollack was asking while they worked on the film. And she says that his questions were the most useful. So he'd say something like, you know, I'm from Indiana. If I get it, everyone gets it. He wanted to know why Eleanor and Marianne couldn't just go out and get a job. Why was Edward so dependent on his mother? Why he keeps his promise to Lucy when it is clear he no longer loves her? Why Eleanor keeps her promise to Lucy and does not reveal the engagement even to Marianne? The probity of these people is difficult to accept sometimes, but it is balanced with behavior of quite the opposite kind from Fanny, Lucy, and Willoughby. Eleanor and Edward seem both to belong to the 18th century, the age of Augustan reason. They are firm, balanced, judgmental, dryly humorous, and far more Alexander Pope than Walter Scott. Marianne shoots towards the middle of the 19th century, embracing each romantic ideal like a new lover. The turn of the century always seems to produce a Janus-like generation, some clinging to old systems, some welcoming the new age always a powerful time. As for the 1995, hmm, difficult times, everything more confused than ever for women haven't got the strength to even think about it. Mm. That's an amazing quote. Um, I also want to say that this really made me think about Marianne in a new way when I was reading through the script. I was kind of bouncing back and forth between the script and the production diary when I read this. And it left me like with a real new appreciation of Marianne, by the way. I feel like I've been giving her like harsh treatment mm-hmm. forever <laughs> since I first read Sense and Sensibility. But I do like this idea that, yes, she is a character that is embracing like a new world and a new way of being. Mm-hmm. And I just love that. I'm like Team Marianne now, by the way. I also like I love dead leaves and poetry so like I actually am Marianne I aspire to be an Eleanor but I'm Marianne all the way actually wow justice for Marianne I'm still Amy much so I really liked um I really liked how the questions he's asking her um get her thinking about Austin and about literature and about women through time like you can see how it kind Mm -hmm. of goes from just like what might seem like, well, why don't they do that? Why don't they do that? Like maybe though they would seem like annoying questions or like you just don't get it, but actually it's important. Mm -hmm. Like it is really important to consider, to consider those things. And like, yeah, 
and have like a deeper understanding of Marianne and have a deeper understanding. And it's one of those things where like, actually, and we'll talk about this more because it is mentioned in the diary. Um, it's it's quite nice that Eleanor is older. Yeah. Because that is gonna, like, it's kind of conveying that a little bit, like Eleanor being mm-hmm. like closer to like this old I, way of I think thinking. It, yes. I think it helps with our sort of modern lens mm-hmm. with the film, for sure. Now, as shooting continues, Thompson begins to talk more and more in her diary about the process of translating Austin's original text for the screen and the ways in which film is trying to tease out the heart of the novel. She comments on the scene they shot where Marianne and Mrs. Dashwood talk about Eleanor's growing attachment to Edward and says, In her responses, Marianne reveals her romantic sensibilities and sets up her image of an ideal man. We're also aware that behind Mrs. Dashwood's equally romantic visions is a harder edged reality. She must get her daughters married for their financial and social security. Thompson thinks about money a lot, which isn't surprising because this film, this book, all Mm. of Austin is full of it, right? And one of my favorite scenes is Fanny and John discussing how much to give to the Dashwood women. Yeah, so it's here's so good, so is good. It, it's, it's like the opening memorable scene as too. Well. Everyone remembers this. Yes, better than a dog dressed as a fox. Like honestly, <laughs> you know what's wild is that Sense and Sensibility sort of ranks on like my least favorite Austin. Mm. Um, I still like it, but it's just like not my favorite. And then when I read this scene, I went, wait, why is this my least favorite? Because it's all about money and I'm obsessed with money. Like that's you all I- You just need to reread it. I just need to reread it. So um, Thompson writes, Thursday, June 1st. Sense and Sensibility is about love and money. Perhaps its main question is, can love survive without money? A pithy question. Romantic codes teach us that love conquers all. Eleanor disagrees. You need a decent wage, a competence. Some people need more. Some people need more money than love. Most people would rather have love with a comfortable amount of money. It's a difficult thing to accept. It cries out against our cherished ideals, but interesting that our Western romantic symbols cost a great deal, like roses and diamonds, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I liked that bit too. And actually it did make me wonder if that question comes from working with Ang Lee, who being mm-hmm. a, a film director is very interested in imagery. And that last comment, whether or not that was in response to maybe like a conversation with him, or even if just working with someone who isn't an American or British filmmaker is making her think about imagery differently and how imagery isn't uniform globally. Mm-hmm. Um, which they talk about a lot with emojis, by the way. There's a really, I don't know, I can't remember the podcast. There's a really good podcast about like how difficult it is to make emojis universal because for Mm -hmm. a farmer, you have to find like a universal crop because crops don't grow everywhere. Right. And like salad has to, they removed their eggs from salad so that it could be like vegan inclusive and just all of it Mm -hmm. anyway. Symbols. Um, So, (laughs) There's also a bit where she talks about Ang Lee's vision for the Marianne and Willoughby confrontation in London that I loved. Um, So Wednesday, 7th of June. Also, you'll notice the shooting 
it at once feels like the longest time, but also it just isn't that much time. Yeah. <laughs> this is a short diary. Mm-hmm. Wednesday, 7th June. Eleanor bumping into Willoughby feels good and exciting, especially coming out of the comedy between her and Robert. I had never imagined this scene occurring in so many different rooms, but Ang's vision is full of movement and notions of class. He's put Willoughby's party into yet another room, even more elite than the rest. So when Marianne sees the portrait of wealth surrounding him, the message is crushingly clear. Yes. The portrayal of love and imagery is definitely on her mind a lot during the filming. And her fears that the love stories within the novel just like won't translate. Mm -hmm. Like that comes up time and time again. Because you know what? This is a subtle story. Like even when she was approached to do it, she was like, Emma would be better. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's other Jane Austen novels that are better this this book is so subtle but like ang's really drawing it out i love that scene actually mm. i went back and rewatched that scene and I, I was like oh i can't believe i've never noticed that before that was so beautifully done um so saturday the 24th of june she says really the sisters lovers spend so much time off screen and neither is ever seen acting like a lover prevented by circumstance so it's all implication very difficult balance to strike for then one has to accept eleanor's pain about losing edward so much let so much later the balance will very much lie in the editing of course such a good point Mm -hmm. so much of the movie gets made in editing guys just wanted to say that it's frightening to think that we might have enough of edward and brandon and willoughby at least we know bringing edward back in the middle which didn't work as there was nothing for him to do. Seeing Brandon and Willoughby fight the duel, which only seemed to subtract from the mystery, bringing Willoughby back at the end, wonderful scene in the novel, which unfortunately interfered too much with the Brandon love story. I wrote hundreds of different versions and it was in and out of the script like the hokey cokey. Do you know what the hokey cokey is? I don't. (laughs) It's a dance. And the song, you put your left arm in, your left arm out. In, it's like the out, hokey in, pokey. Out, you shake it all about. You do the hokey cokey and you turn around. Wait. That's what it's all about. Do you guys call it the hokey cokey and we call it the hokey pokey? Did I just write it wrong? So this is a question for our listeners. Am I wrong? But do all of those scenes that Emma Thompson mentions make it into the 2008 TV series? I think do. <laughs> the Willoughby confession definitely does. The Brandon and Willoughby duel, I think does. And also, doesn't Edward come back in the middle? Is that like the bit where he's chopping the wood in the rain, which is completely ridiculous? I, is that I think so. him coming back? Like, what? Are, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I'm wondering too. Yeah, yeah. what are we saying, guys? Like, let me know. This is like the gate gate. And I was mm-hmm. right about Gategate. So mm-hmm. oh, it's funny how she talks about the scenes and like the chopping and changing way that you have to write a movie. So a few weeks earlier in the diary, she's recounting a conversation she had with Alan Rickman about the Brandon confession scene and how Rickman dis- described it as a man thawing out after having been in a fridge for 20 years. The movement of blood and warmth back into unaccustomed veins is extremely painful. 
And she admits that that scene had existed in all of these different forms, but she realized it was emotionally more interesting to just let Brandon tell the story himself and find it difficult, which is how it's delivered in the book. So like she tried all of these things and then actually she's just coming back to closer to the text because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, in that instance, maybe film can't do more than just someone telling a story can. And that goes back Mm -hmm. even further than the book. That goes back to oral storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think that also hinges on the strength of the actor too, right? Because Mm -hmm. like Alan Rickman really got what he was doing and he can also deliver that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you had an actor who couldn't deliver that, then you're going to have to like sort of dress it up. Ryan Reynolds, could he do it? I don't think so. I don't know why that's who I (laughs) thought. Wow. I guess in for Ryan Reynolds today. to Ryan Reynolds, but yeah, that's, I guess, I stand by it. Uh, in another diary entry, she remarks that making the male characters effective was one of the biggest problems. In the novel, Edward and Brandon are quite shadowy, they're absent for long periods, and we had to work hard to keep them present even when they're off screen. Willoughby is really the only male who springs out in three dimensions, and he's a precursor to her other charm merchants, Frank Churchill and Emma, Wickham in Pride and Prejudice, and Henry Crawford in Mansfield Park. And I was just fuming. The reason I actually pulled out that entry was just so that I could say I was annoyed she didn't mention John Thorpe. (laughs) (laughs) But were you annoyed? Yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, yes, there is a lot of John Thorpe oversight. I think John Thorpe is a precursor to Willoughby, let's be honest. Wow. He's the OG. One entry I appreciated in particular was when she talked about her approach to the language you have to use when adapting a novel for screen. So we talked about this a little bit last week uh, in relation to the National Theatre interview. And it's so funny to then find Thompson saying like just the exact same thing. (laughs) So I like it because it really backs up our point, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Emma. Wednesday, the 31st of May. The language in the novel is complex and far more arcane than in the later books. In simplifying it, I've tried to retain the elegance and wit of the original, and it's necessarily more taxing than modern speech. And from the same entry, I seem finally to have stopped worrying about Eleanor and age. She seems now to be perfectly normal, about 25, a witty control freak. I like her, but I can see how she would drive you mad. She's just the sort of person you want to get drunk with, just to make her giggling and silly. Okay, so I feel like we, I talk about this like all the time on the podcast, but we know that Emma Thompson did not want to play Eleanor. She had actually imagined the Richardson sisters in the role. So I believe that's Natasha for Eleanor and Miranda for Marianne. You can you can fact check me you on know that, guys, I don't but I think it's it's about I think it's those guys. Anyway, so she had imagined someone else in the role. So it was interesting to see her coming to terms with actually like playing Eleanor and Eleanor's new age in the diary alongside like repeated, like agonizing, just like worrying that like she looks too old. Oh, for the she's role. so down on herself in the diary. It's really mm-hmm. like. Yeah, you can only imagine how low her confidence was at the time. And then for years, people afterwards just being like, you're too old. She's like, see, I was right. But she wasn't. (laughs) I mean, 
I am fine with it because of like, you know, I'm fine with it because men do it all of the time. And also women are constantly cast to be like 40 year old women. But in actuality, they're 25. Mm -hmm. Or when Um, it's teenagers, it's the opposite. And you've got like fully developed 30 year old women playing a 16 year old. I see like so many women do that are like my age on screen and they have like children. They're like dealing with children in high school. <laughs> I'm always like, when did they have these kids? Like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> this woman's a grandmother. How old am I? Um, you know, oh, my God. Jennifer Lawrence and Joy. Like, do we need to go <laughs> into Jennifer Lawrence's early career? It's kind of wild. So I'm just like, I'm fine that, you know, an older actress has taken a younger part, especially because that older actress is um, really right for the part, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, is that, the deal. I, that bit really stuck out to me too. And I think um, there was a really nice bit early on in the diary where she comments on how the film is really multi-generational. Margaret's 12, Marianne and Eleanor are both aged up, actually, uh, to be mm-hmm. in their 20s, according to the diary. Um, I can understand wanting to age Marianne up a little bit. Yeah. Right. The 16 year old situation doesn't read so well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like for a modern lens. Um, And then Mrs. Dashwood is in her 40s and then Mrs. Jennings is in her 60s. And then she says something along the line of like, not a 30 year old in sight. So ouch. (laughs) Thanks for that. Uh, But one of the other scenes that definitely I think sticks in people's mind, it's really sticks in my mind is when Eleanor like hears Edward isn't married and I've never really liked that scene like I don't think I ever really bought the emotional response to it like I didn't get Mm -hmm. it and then reading the diary she talks about the experience that she was drawn to her own personal experience that she was drawn to to kind of bring that scene to life um And how she's having to perform it, but then also not knowing which version of the scene is going to end up like in the film. Right. So going to this really painful place and not and being like, maybe they won't even use this. That's something I think we don't talk about enough when we're like talking about film is that that happens all the time. Right. Like actors give different takes. Mm. Like now do one more angry. Now do one more subtle. Now like. Oh, I you know, only know. They, they don't know. They don't know what's gonna like happen in the end, right? Like you don't know what's gonna end up in the wash. So obnoxious. I watched a documentary about how they made Frozen two, and mm-hmm. I did not know that they did that in voice acting until oh, I yeah. watched it. And watching Jonathan Groff deliver the same line eighteen times, mm-hmm. and then I kept talking to Sam, and I kept just saying the same thing, but like different emotions. And he's like, Hannah, you you've got to stop. And I was like, no, it's really entertaining. No, it's really entertaining. No, it's really entertaining. No, it's really entertaining. (laughs) Just for days. It just, I guess we've never, we, all of us have just never made a film before guys. So like, yeah. Yeah. Where's this insight meant to come from? So yeah, so this is that diary entry. Friday, 16th June. We shoot largely out of sequence, of course, so I've already done the loss of control in the last scene, which I tried to make as involuntary as possible, a case of the diaphragm taking over. I remembered going to the bank shortly after my father died to try and sort through his papers. 
I was feeling perfectly calm and sat in the office talking to the manager when suddenly my diaphragm lurched into action and I was unable to do anything but sob helplessly. Walked home, shoulders heaving, thinking, this is weird, because I couldn't stop. There was no possibility of controlling it. It never happened before or since and was though the emotion was quite disconnected from actual thought. That was what I wanted to duplicate for the scene when Eleanor finds out Edward isn't married. This moment, though, is much more one of anger, which I've always found very difficult. It's a hotness that's hard to simulate, a sharp heat. She's furious with Marianne, but hates feeling the anger and doesn't quite know what to do with it, like watching someone trying to bottle a genie. Yeah. So, like, the two different things i think it's interesting too like inhabiting how she was have trying to inhabit an emotion that she struggles with and knowing Mm -hmm. that like just because maybe you don't get angry or you don't feel a certain way your if your character does then you like you have to find that from somewhere and to close out this episode here is a heavily edited diary entry from the last day of filming so friday july 7th the day after my birthday july 6th Last day of the shoot, finished on take five of Slate 550. A shot of Alan cantering against the sunset. I just grinned from ear to ear all evening. All within Eleanor's breast was a strong, silent satisfaction. Guys, it's in the book. (laughs) So we love this book so, so much, obviously. We read you like so much of it, but not all of it. (laughs) Not all of it. We strongly recommend that you guys give it a read. And um, I just want to say a big thanks again to our guest, Sharmini Kumar, for coming on the show today to talk to us and uh, for all of her awesome work within the Austin community. We would love to visit you in Melbourne one day. We will be sharing some of our favorite behind the scenes shots from the set of Thompson's Sense and Sensibility on our socials and would love to hear your own thoughts on the film. Hannah, where can the good people find us on the internets? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our wonderful Facebook community by searching for Bonnets at Dawn on, you guessed it, Facebook. And you can order our book, Why She Wrote, from all major retailers, including our favourite, bookshop.org. Bye.